Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we regally read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. I am a little prepubescent today, prepubescent sounding, because I went and scream sang at a concert on Friday night, and then I went to Riot Fest all day on Saturday. My life is awesome, and I'm a very cultured man, but the work suffers due to it. It's okay. Novelizations have respect. In awe of the script that begot them, these books strive to capture the exact filmic visual panache that makes an adventure so stylish and zippy to behold on the big screen. In this reverence, they falter to find their own identity, and maybe to justify their own existence. However, the text has a sneaky, winning charisma. In their sycophantic adoration for the source material, novelizations conjure memories of a close childhood friend breathlessly retelling the plot of a film they just saw. That film, for a few brief weeks, becoming their North Star and possessing their every thought. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Ethan Warren. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Ocean's Eleven is a 2001 heist film directed by Steven Soderbergh, a remake, sorta, of the 1960s Frank Sinatra vehicle. It follows Danny Ocean, a recently released career criminal who immediately sets his sights on a new piggy bank to pilfer, three major Las Vegas casinos that just so happen to belong to Ocean's ex-wife's new paramour, who's hot and dateable, I don't know. For the gargantuan task, he'll need a gargantuan team, himself plus 10. But will 11 con men be enough for this job? What if a robbery so Herculean is simply beyond the realm of human capability? And even if it is possible, will Danny Ocean be able to keep 1,000 plates spinning with his lost love present around every corner? The novelization of Ocean's Eleven was written by Dewey Graham, based on a screenplay by Ted Griffin and a screenplay by Harry Brown and Charles Lederer, which I hope someone can unpack for me. It was released by Onyx <laughs> in 2001. Yeah, so that threw me too. We've never ever <laughs> And I didn't do any research because the... I never do. So. <laughs> and no, I, I didn't really research either, except that when writing this, I, I went, we've never ever seen the credit based on a screenplay and on a screenplay. It's usually based on a story by and a screenplay. I, I thought to myself, did some guys write a, a screenplay for Ocean's Eleven and then they threw the whole thing out, but were, they were legally required to credit them? But it turns out, and they were wrong to do this, but it turns out that they are crediting the writers of the original film, uh. from which they have lifted almost nothing. <laughs> Respect. Okay. We'll great. get into Love it. it. But the connective tissue is almost zero. Our guest today, a TV critic, the TV critic. Well, there's probably others. <laughs> there are three. So a <laughs> one of three. <laughs> Our guest today, the gold medal out of a winning trio of TV critics at Vulture, Roxana Hadadi. How you doing? I'm good. We get to talk about like. One of my favorite Soderberghs on any given day, maybe my favorite Soderbergh. And like, I don't know, this book that was sort of like a warm hug, but also sort of like, what are some of these choices? So yeah, I'm good. I'm 
Let, I want to unpack that Soderbergh thing. Uh, a big, big Steve head over here. Uh, just absolutely adore this movie. What do you think is even in the running to unseat Oceans as number one Stevie? Oh my god, I have so many answers for you. Like, it could be Aaron Brockovich, which I also think is like a perfect film. It could be High Flying Bird, which I find incredibly underappreciated mm-hmm. and very mm-hmm. no, good. No, it's appreciated Andrew, at the right level. That's correct. No, that's so like XXL, a masterpiece it's of any genre. Bad. Yeah, like Steve. Steve's great. Steve's got tons of stuff that could slot in there. Mm. Uh, he didn't direct XXL. Sorry to sorry. I don't to care. There, I but, googled and um, there it was, and he's he's part of it emotionally to me. He of course directed Magic Mike and uh, Magic Mike: The Last Dance or Magic Mike's Last Dance, whatever that well, was called. Tell Google that I, I got. I'm making a fool of myself, well, and I apologize. I'm all over the place right now, but I got to say. Last Dance was like one of the most anonymous Soderbergh directorial uh, gigs I've ever seen. You could have told me it was someone else and I, I would have fully believed you. Go ahead. It sort of just felt like it was like he just wanted to hang out with the boys again. Like that movie is sort of like a nothing burger in like a lot of ways. <laughs> it just felt like, you know, just like dudes hanging, being dudes. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of Ocean's Eleven, the thing that's so miraculous to me about this movie is that it balances 11 guys in these two scenarios, right? It's like we're a third of the movie or half the movie is we're getting the team together, and then so much of the movie is actual heist. Just this unconscionable mm-hmm. amount of runtime is heist. And the fact that that works is sort of incredible. Last Dance... They put so much emphasis on, we're going to find the hottest, most dancey men on earth and recruit them all. And then they give zero character development to a single one. I'm nodding. I'm nodding in agreement. (laughs) I mean, because it's just an ad. Like, I love Stevie Baby, but like that movie is just an ad for the live show. You yeah, know, but he can't like, he can't do that, me knowing who he is. He can't do a montage of we just found this dancer out of Milan and he doesn't speak a word of English, but we're gonna bring him <laughs> here and make him into a sensation. And then the man doesn't have a line for the whole movie. Not cool. Have you have you considered rewatching High Flying Bird instead? <laughs> okay, look, fine. Just a Soderbergh episode, whatever. We'll just talk about his whole filmography. Hi, are are you a basketball person? I'm a basketball person, and I actually think that the, like, organized labor pinnings of that movie are really interesting, given, like, Soderbergh's other work, thematically. I am a totally not basketball person who does not know even the positions that are on the court. You could tell me eight Mm -hmm. guys play basketball at a time. You could tell me it's three on three. I'd be like, yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. The... My I don't favorite think the mechanics of basketball matter for that movie. Like, it's not actually like arguing about who's on the court, right? It's about like. No, I only make that point to say how far out I am from it. And I, mm-hmm. I felt like everyone in my life who understood the politics of whatever the heck was happening thought it was really poignant. And I was sitting there going, this is nothing to me. And just as a counterpoint, my favorite movie of all time. Uncut Gems. 
a basketball-ish film. Oh, Andrew, I hate uncut gems. <laughs> okay, well, this this is fun. What's uh, he's uh, he's got a sell. He's got a sell. This has got like Hannah and Travis Woods energy. He has to sell. Now we have to claw back into friendship. He got the. He has to sell it before because he's and he's always he's taking these risks that he really shouldn't take. Um, you didn't like that they yelled. Was that it? Was it too yelly? It's just exhausting. I don't care. I have no connection with any of these characters. The thing is, I I agree with this opinion. And I, I've oh, never no. shared this with Thank you, but you. I, I oh my god, agree with this opinion. <laughs> I saw uncut gems. Period. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of it doesn't work for me. Like the Julia Fox of it all doesn't work for me. I understand that Sandler is like doing something very different, but it feels like incredibly falsely heightened. But I don't like mm-hmm. the Safties in general. So I, it's just like a me uh. issue. Like, I hate good time. I just, I don't ah. care for them at all. <laughs> hey, you what? When the movie was playing, you were looking at it? Good time? Yeah. Yeah. Like, grimacing in disdain. That movie sucks. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, um, I'm good. No. Yeah. Um, we okay, came well, here to talk about um, so, a completely then, uncontroversially good time. movie that you both love. Oh. <laughs> it's so true. I'm not taking this personally. personally. So we're good. Look, I'll talk about I'll talk about Ocean's Eleven. Whatever. All I'm saying about Uncut Gems is that it it, it has a climax. It invented a new kind of climax. He has none of what? the power, what? but he's imp- he's no. It invented a new kind of climax. He has none of the power. That's, there's but no he's, way. He's, He's imprisoning the people that have all the power. And so he's like in a position where he's calling the shots, but he's 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 under their thumb the whole time. It's genius. Andrew. I'm <laughs> Are begging you, okay? you to watch more movies. <laughs> it's the only movie I've seen. Roxana, I would like to add some context to Andrew for you. Which is mm-hmm. Part of why we're covering Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh, is because we covered Ocean's Eleven old movie. Because sure. we're doing a season of movie, movies pre-1970. Because Andrew has basically seen zero movies from before <laughs> he was born. I've seen The Godfather. He's seen one movie from before the year he was born. <laughs> Wait, have you not seen Godfather Part too? Are you no, joking? No, I've seen I'm all the Godfathers. I, okay. I think, I think what's Hannah. Hannah is essentially right, but like, but what what's basically true of me is that, like of any film person, I watch an ungodly amount of films, sure. and ninety five percent of them are from nineteen eighty five or later. Mm-hmm. I would say I have I've probably seen two hundred films from before I was born in my life, but for the amount of movies I'm watching, it should be two thousand. Yeah, but I also think we live in a time where, like, unless you have, like, criterion, that's going to be difficult. Like, it's not like things have become easier. It's not like access has become easier. You need, like, a library. You need criterion. You need, like, Mariah Gates telling you what to watch. Like, you need, like... When, <laughs> when I have... When I watch the movies... gets really obsessed with a guy who died 50 years ago. He's got to mm-hmm. be that person. Mm-hmm. When I'm watching movies, I have... I have criterion. I got one criterion. Younger than me, please. I'm at the channel, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the channel? No, I'm kidding. Okay, uh, 
I'm having trouble recovering, getting in the fun mood after they reveal that no. everyone hates the, the uncut gems, but that's okay. Um, great. Judd Hirsch, just incredible. Okay, so anyway, Ocean's Eleven, Roxana, what, if anything, is your relationship to this film? Man, this is such... I was thinking about this before, because I rewatched this yesterday, and... Ethan sort of knows this because we have talked on Twitter, but like there's some movies that I just, I have no memory of when I watched them the first time. They just are sort of like implanted on to me. Um, So I have no clue the first time I watched this, but this entire trilogy has become like a major comfort watch for me over the years um and i have a lot of comfort watches like zodiac is a comfort watch weirdly mm. um but like this trilogy and especially this movie uh i just love everything about it everyone is perfect in it it's like slick without feeling try hard the script is like very fun and lived in it's incredibly atmospheric i find vegas as a concept like incredibly repellent um but like everything about this movie is just like i don't know i already said a warm hug but i really believe that it is like a warm hug this movie is so convincing that it made us believe that george clooney and brad pitt really are friends when like they absolutely are not <laughs> sad sad to hear it it's very sad um so yeah I love so it's just coincidental or tr- was it just coincidental or were they trying to cash in on the duo that they did burn after reading. I thought that was the ultimate confirmation that they liked to hang. My understanding is that they never really liked to hang. They're very good at being like, you know, chemistry and together and like on screen, they vibe. But my understanding was that in real life, they didn't like, it's not like they disliked each other, but they weren't like BFFs as we are all led to believe. I'm sorry. Sorry wow. for breaking also, your heart, Andrew. All I remember, <laughs> all I remember about Burn After Reading is they have one very significant encounter. Say more, Ethan. Yeah, I don't you're remember. Right. I don't remember anything. You're about actually Burn right, After Ethan. Reading. You they don't barely remember, intersect. Oh, you're right. George Clooney shoots Brad Pitt in the face. Oh, that's that's nice. all I, I remember like that. about that. It's kind of the only scene <laughs> yeah. in Burn After Reading I remember. Yeah, I have yeah. I have zero memory of that film, like whatsoever. Yeah. But yeah. Ocean's Eleven, strong, positive feelings. I might like 12 more, but that, that might just be contrarian to say that right now. Um, but yeah, 11, great. Speaking of how the movie is uh, soothing, warm hug, all that, I, I totally agree. I wrote in my letterbox review that I find basically everything Soderbergh does to be edited in this way that is intensely common. And the subject matter is almost secondary. I find Contagion extremely soothing. I find Kimmy extremely soothing. And it's, it doesn't so much matter what is happening on screen. There's something I can't really articulate about the way he handles lighting, cuts, all this stuff that I feel as if I'm being told... a like a bedtime story, no matter what the subject matter is. So I'm totally with you on that. What Ocean's about like Eleven in particular? Sorry. Um, I think no, it's no, so cozy because it, it still has film grain. It's still a little lo-fi. Everything's like warm reds and yellows. The inside of a casino is very 
lush and and comfy on purpose. It's just like the whole thing is stay, relax, luxuriate. Luxuriate without mm. being gauche. Like it's the Bellagio, which is like one of the nicest Vegas hotels. Um, I don't know how much they actually filmed there, if at all. But like there is a uh, very like self-assured quality to everyone in the movie and like also in their locations. So a lot of it is just like a feedback loop. Like nothing happens that cannot be overcome, <laughs> which is uh, really satisfying. That's a terrific point, because something I, I kept thinking rewatching it this time is the thing that makes this film singular to me is that it's dealing in this genre that is predicated on brutality, mm-hmm. smash and grab. We're going, you know, we're going to take by force and refuses to engage with it uh, to, to the point where it is almost just straight up a, a fantasy trilogy, right? Because they, they increasingly get into these horribly dangerous situations and there's never even really the threat of violence like in 12 there is the he blows up brad pitt's car and and all that stuff but you as an audience member never feel that necks are on the line which i can see myself saying this exact same thing about a different movie and going and that's why it sucks they just didn't commit but it is the virtue of this film for me is that it somehow takes a thing that's exciting and brutal and strips away all the brutality so it's only good and fun I also think that there's something about the dialogue that, okay, let me back up. Normally, I really dislike dialogue or plotting that will reveal that everyone was a step ahead already. I'm thinking about like Sons of Anarchy, a show I watched every episode of, and like every season did this where the ending would be like, guess what, guys? This motorcycle gang was planning this stuff all along. And I hated that. Like I got very <laughs> tired of that. But this movie does that very gracefully. So like every time it's revealed that Danny Ocean like was one step ahead or like Rusty actually knew what he was doing. There's like a really like winking quality to that, that I think is enjoyable without being smug. And that is sort Mm. of what's the key to the rewatch for me as well. It's like, you know, what's coming. So you have that additional knowledge, um, but it feels like a benefit rather than a drag. I never feel like the movie is getting a one up on me but it is getting a one-up on the villains of the piece. So even though I wasn't part of the gang, I don't feel like I'm being made to feel like, ah, dumb, which is good. The only one that grates on me a little bit is the bruiser reveal, because Mm -hmm. it's unclear in the film whether that was planned, whether it was a lucky break, it's totally unestablished. And no, then the book, I mean, just to get sorry, into Sorry, Danny does have that line. That's like, I had to offer oh, and not a until couple later. million. But it's like, it's, it is explained, not in the moment. That's not, a, that's not in the movie. Yeah, it that's is. from the book. It's in, it the is? in the movie. I heard it. It's Wait, but does that mean that he offered it to him before the fact? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, the, my, my thing with this, I, I didn't notice that line in the movie and I, in the book. I was like, oh, Dewey Graham has taken a liberty, but I guess he didn't. <laughs> uh, the thing that bothers me about that is that either way you slice it, I don't really like it. I don't like it if it's happenstance, and I also don't like it if v- 
Terry Benedict has trust in someone he feels is brutal, but is actually a Danny Ocean friend, it feels like he would be smarter in that one department. But I don't the implication think, is I, that he's not a Danny Ocean friend, right? Like, he's the... Inf- my, okay, the way I understood it was, he's the enforcer, like, uh, we figured out who he was because Matt Damon was following everyone, and then Danny paid him off as a bribe beforehand. Yeah, that's I how I interpret no it as well. I fucking idea what you guys are talking about. I've seen this movie 30 times. What are you talking my about? My interpretation of that is that they have done their homework and they know who the Bellagio uses for this kind of thing. So they find him in the same way that they like find the security guard and, and find the stripper, the stripper and, and make that happen yeah. for themselves. They find him, they get to him, they offer him like $4 million to not beat the shit out of Danny when he's called to beat the shit out of Danny. You're telling me that Bruiser yeah. is in the montage with the uh, watching the guy who enjoys this no, what I'm is saying just a similar thing. The implication, that has happened, I yeah, think is the implication. Ethan, what's your opinion? Ethan's just listening. Ethan, do you, he do you have an opinion here? No, he does this my, to us, and then and then eight episodes in, he'll go, "I don't like uncut gems." It's like <laughs> we made problem, you a host. Well, my problem with this movie is that I don't like it as much as you guys do. <laughs> so I'm just hanging back a little bit because I have a few problems with this movie. And go, one of them so, is yeah, go. One of them is I don't know what happens to it, and I've read the book. <laughs> I mean, I have a I problem I, with the what happens in it as well. Be- in that the the switch of time and tape and where the money goes at any moment, like I don't really get it. But when I watch the movie, I don't fucking care and that's kind of the magic right. of the movie is i'm like along for the ride i'm like they did it they got the money it wasn't money it was stripper flyers how dope and i just don't care what happens there's many movies where i really need the details and the magic of this movie is that i never feel that i do but i agree that i i couldn't totally tell you somebody can it's not me is it roxana <laughs> It might be me and Andrew. This might be our double team. But I'm curious what Ethan's other complaints are because his face looks like he wants to share them. No, I don't have any other complaints in particular. I, I like Hannah, just enjoy it on like a moment-to-moment basis. Like a vibe level. Can... Exactly, yeah. Um, but it can never... And I also, I don't like movies about people doing crimes in particular <laughs> because I don't do crimes you're a mr good boy i think it's bad to do crimes (laughs) um no it's it's like there is a huge a huge swath very big to that i i'm with you what the what what on earth even one of your favorite movies is the dark crystal how do you relate to that shit the dark oh well if i lived in that world i would also be a virtuous boy just like the like the main gelfling the joy Um, of watching crime movies is that you are not a criminal but it's thrilling exciting and sexy there are probably a number of crime movies that i could tell you that i enjoy a lot movies about organized crime in particular and this is a movie that you could call about organized crime they are Mm -hmm. very organized criminals sure um i just am not compelled by movies about organized criminals (laughs) I just I I I've I've seen The Period. Godfather. I'm aware of Roxana's intense relationship with that movie. <laughs> and it just isn't my movie. This is very freeing for me because uh, one by one I'm going to take you all down 
This is why Ethan's uncut gems opinion is invalid. Is because he just oh, wants so that character to be that, virtuous. There, there's so many reasons that my opinion about that movie is invalid. If Ethan said he wants people to be virtuous, I think he just said uncut gems should be better than it is, which is bad. That's how I understood. What mm, I wow! 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 No, all, right. all I meant by my comments about virtue is that a lot of movies, like I watched Goodfellas, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of that movie seemed to be teaching me that that it's um, going to rot your soul to do crimes. Sure. And I was like, I walked in knowing that. And so I just went on this lovely ride, but I didn't feel like I needed to be sort of, you know, educated on why I don't do crimes. So the Ocean's Eleven that version. That sounds like an Ethan problem, not <laughs> it, like a it is, movie's it is. problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I am I am walled off from some of the greatest films that have ever been made just by my basic inability to engage with the premise of crime. That's okay, can I have follow-up? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I want to ask my follow-up, but Hannah, did you, you, you had a follow-up first. Uh, I did, but you go ahead because mine, I think, might take us back into Ocean's Eleven. Okay, well, mine is Ocean's related as well. I think that the Ocean's crime is justified. Do we not think that the Ocean's crime is justified, Ethan? That's that is a big question and one that I have been thinking about in the context of this movie is whether or not they are the bad guys of the movie, right? Um, I mean, Terry Bonnet doesn't does seem like a, a very movie nice man. Need bad guys, or can a movie just be oh, guys? No. Guys, okay. this is just a movie about guys. This yeah. is straight yeah. up a movie about guys. My question related to Roxana's question very much. In Ocean's Eleven, the vibe is very much that crime is cool, sexy, and fun, and doing it makes 100%. you cool, sexy, and fun instead I would of like a cool, stodgy stick in the mud. Right, but you don't respond to that, Ethan. Um, you don't think what's I, happening I would, in Ocean's I would Eleven like is to cool, be, sexy, I would fun? really like to be cool, sexy, and fun now that you mention it. <laughs> Ethan so maybe I said, need to come around on that point. <laughs> Ethan said George Clooney in this movie unattracted. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. Hang least on, dateable, We're, second least dateable to me. Yeah, we got to come back to that because I think Andrew missed that point. No, I didn't miss any of it. So to, for the listener, uh, pre, uh, before the episode began, <laughs> I was uh, coming off of a, a marathon of tutoring, so I went to you know, get get some water and stuff like that. And I had my headphones in and everyone was talking about which pr- people from the Oceans crew they want to smash. And Dateable. Hannah was throwing some or real... Different yeah, we did not say smash. Yeah, that's a completely different I'm, thing. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I didn't, I, I didn't realize I was on a podcast with people who like to chase date. What the fuck? It's just a different question. Who doesn't like to chase encompasses an on. amount of fuckability, but it's no, no. different. Chased date, oh. not chase D. Okay. Chased oh. date. I'm not saying chase. I'm saying <laughs> dateability, which is a, just a larger lev- number of factors. Like, I think the Mormon twins might be good at fucking, but I probably wouldn't want to date them. <laughs> And I think no, no, they're no. kind of angry guys, and I don't know if I'd want yeah. to date that. Totally. Right. No, no, guys, I, I stand by what I said. This is a not to get into math stuff, which I would never do, but this is a, a squares or rectangles. Rectangles aren't squares thing, where it's like the the you said date, I said that implies fuck. I didn't say it implies the opposite, that fuck implies date. No, you guys I are know, making fuck implies date like, arguments. I just think that like 
dateability is a bigger umbrella than fuckability, right? Yeah, yeah but fuckability true. is a, is it's part in, is, of dateability is... for sure. But it's not my first right. part of dateability. No. And I'm not talking about like who would I smash. That's a different list than who would I date. Dateability mm-hmm, is like, mm-hmm. could I spend like a whole Saturday afternoon with this person inside? That's like a high, that's like a high level. Fuckability yeah. is like half Who's an hour to an hour. Like, and then you're gone. Like, Who's got a bod that won't quit? It's different. Correct. Correct. This I want to ask everybody, is- most dateable, least dateable. You can think about it, but I do want to hear it before the episode is over. Elliot Gould, most dateable. Mm. Interesting. Not okay, how I would. He's got a very comfortable lifestyle. That's he does. True. That's very true. That's true. If I'm not, if I don't need to have sex with these people, the person I want to spend time with the most is Saul. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Like at the horse races. Yeah, or the I want to like hear. I want to hear him talk shit about old guys I've never heard of. Yeah, and I want him to. I want to hear about the problems he's having with the woman at the unmentionables counter. Yeah. So you're just describing friendship, yeah, I, that's I guess. Not we, yeah. we well, that's what I, you guys have really taken out. I'm not you guys have taken fuckability. It's just not the only question, Andrew. Andrew, Andrew is <laughs> literally so describing here. Andrew is like making a nice senior citizen friend. <laughs> hearing their story. I guess. I have, two types of, I have two types of interpersonal relationships. Uh, it's just old men I really care about and I love to converse with and fucking. Yeah. <laughs> it's all I do. Nothing in between. Yeah. That's, that's fine. Speaking, uh, what's the problem? Hannah, speaking of what you said to Ethan about this uh, being a very sexy movie that makes crime look sexy and does he want to be sexy? What's his problem? The, this book begins in a way that made me worry for one second that Dewey Graham had completely misread the tone of the film. <laughs> Chapter one, I mean, I laughed out loud. Chapter one starts with New Jersey. There was nowhere to go but up for inmate 773-6648-367. Prison is a hellhole for the spirit. <laughs> I was like, whoa, whoa, man. No, Danny Ocean is rolling out of that prison like Look, I didn't like being there, but I had a fine time. But the other thing that's funny about this is, like, to Hannah's point, yes, I think that the movie makes it look, like, sexy and cool and great. But the book really leans in on Vegas being sexy and cool and great in a way that I feel like the movie does not. Like, there are long passages in the book where they just talk about, like, Big boy fun in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. There's a whole section where, like, the guys all chat about how any minute now sex is going to come back to Las Vegas and it's going to be like tits out hot. Yeah. And that was a little gross. I will admit uh, that that was a little gross. In the spirit of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, anytime there's a chapter break, he just gives himself like two pages to kind of run wild. Yeah. And a lot of the time, it's about sex work. Yeah. Especially towards the middle. It's just like, did you know that they're out of town escorts who come to Las Vegas and they like shoulder out the local escorts? <laughs> it's very weird. It's a little strange. And there's a scene in the book that I don't remember being in the movie, but we can like talk about that later. Related to sex work. With Ruben's girlfriends? Yes, Anna, <laughs> that scene is not in the movie. No, it's not. <laughs> 
Ruben in this book is just hanging around the heist a lot more than he is in the movie because yeah. it, you watch the movie and it's very apparent that he's not going to have a part of the heist. He's just bankrolling the situation yeah. mm -hmm. and it's fine. It's like that's a great reason for him to not be super involved, right? Uh, but in the book, there's this need to be like, and then, of course, as Danny was arguing with Tess in the restaurant, Ruben was also there, <laughs> and he thought it was strange. Yeah, there's like one split second at the fight where you do see Ruben in a row behind Benedict and Tess, and there he is flanked by like a couple women. But uh, like, I know Elliot Gould is hot. Like, I don't like I don't need. <laughs> I believe that he just got some women to come with him. Yeah, like that's fine. I don't need additional. So just context. just to clarify for the listener, what what was given as detail as to the women he was with? They uh, I put a page on it. I gotta find it. Yeah, as like beautiful blondes on his arm, who he says are I like found his it. nieces. Go ahead. Yeah, page one eighty. In the restaurant, a maitre d' scored his reservations list, readying himself for the next expected customers. He peered up to find Ruben Tishkoff approaching. On either side of him, two gorgeous young women, all blonde hair and breasts and legs. Women who wouldn't even give Hefner the time of day. And yeah, then he calls them his nieces. And it's like... And Very much not your nieces. Shortly thereafter says the meter's running here, implying that they are <laughs> prostitutes. Yes. Am I good for them? But it's yes. explicit here in the book. Yeah. It's, uh... Oh, here we go. Page 183. The thugs escorted Danny away, right past Reuben and his brace of bimbos. This book, Rude. like, maybe hates women? <laughs> I wonder if the author really hates had a poor read. Women. <laughs> I wonder if the author hates women. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, I wonder if the author just had a really poor grasp on what the tone of this film was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, it feels like he's trying to be Soderbergh. Like, and he he literally writes paragraphs that'll be like. Uh, they talked about how Livingston would be a great person to recruit. Livingston sat in his van. Um, he does cuts in the text that uh, are essentially trying to replicate montages that he probably didn't see because he's probably working off the script. But in other parts, I did feel like he thought it was going to be a seedier, you know, we're going into Sin City to fucking take it down type mm -hmm. of attitude because mm. it's all over this book. H Hannah, a question for you, because yeah. I don't remember super well. Mm. Uh was any of these or grammar were any of these weird hangups that are in this book uh, in regards to him hating women and whatnot present in sneakers, which we also read by the same author? I don't recall. So I mean, it seemed like a totally innocent book, right? Sneakers does have multiple scenes where the characters of sneakers leave the sneak and are like, I live with some hot broads on a boat. <laughs> so like some of that, there's some of that. I don't remember thinking that it was icky in quite this, the way that some of this is here. Um, but I don't totally remember. Sort of. Uh, it made me think that he was a time traveler who was also writing the book for The Hangover. 
because <laughs> <laughs> so much of it is just like back in the day before you know what's really funny is that a lot of it is like back in the day before vegas became family friendly and like when did i go to vegas i was in high school because we went by there. the way that family friendly vegas won't fucking last yeah, but I guess my point is, like, in the early 2000s, I went to Vegas at some point in the early 2000s with my parents, and I remember not being allowed on the casino floor, and I remember not thinking that it was really family-friendly at that time. So, of course, everything is a matter of perspective, but it's just really funny that this book, like, takes that angle when I don't think that angle exists at all in the movie. Like, I don't think there's any subtext to the film that's, like, these kids are ruining Sin City, these parents. Like, I don't sense that at all from Soderbergh. Mm. Do you think that the characters themselves are, in the book, that they are uh, unrepentant uh, sexaholic freaks? Or Because when I read this passage on 88, which, Roxana, you pointed at as, as being... Uh, sort of them being kind of gross i mm-hmm. thought they were just being philosophical about sort of the human condition maybe i was being too too generous but the the passage is talking about ha- the the familyification of vegas and mm-hmm. it says uh mom and dad were not there as of yore for the big ticket lounge acts and glamorous bare-breasted floor shows dad and mom were dragging <clears throat> their 3.4 kids down the boulevard gaping at the gigantic pyramid that was really just a hotel or the phony volcano that spewed fire and water lava every 15 minutes. This new family Vegas wasn't going to last. So proclaimed the 11 in a moment of boozy ebullience after one of their hardworking planning sessions. The real money in Vegas was in gambling, in the open-fisted, compulsive, hey, it's only a year, it's only once a year, uh, prodigality of the visitors who came for the thrill of Vegas style gambling, gambling dressed up in sex, blatant, frank, unapologetic, everywhere you looked sex, wave pools and roller coasters and tiger acts were fun, but not adult fun. Sex would be back. Topless would be back on that. They all agreed. I didn't think this was them being like, show me those tits i thought they were going we we feel that this stage vegas is going through is in denial of its its sort of uh carnal disgustingness this feels more to me in line with the 1961 oceans 11 which i do yes. think is grimier it's sexier sexier yes. whatever there's a lot more sex in it um and this felt to me like a little throwback to like the previous Ocean's Eleven, the way Vegas was when it was previously Ocean's Elevensed. Um, mm-hmm. This the, is that why type we of have guy the double. These guys are them, and it's a whole. And I wonder if Dewey Graham was like, "Sure, I've seen Ocean's Eleven. I get what this one will be because it's a remake, of course." Um, and he was not this totally why, right. This is why we got the double based on a screenplay. Mm. <laughs> this one paragraph. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I think it's a little bit I don't know if I necessarily want to say when I read this, I thought they personally were skeezy. But I agree with Hannah's point where I don't glean 
any uh, sordid judgment from the text. Hmm. I do think it is saying mm. like, Vegas. Mm-hmm. Vegas used to be something, man. <laughs> like Vegas wasn't corporate, um, and it's like sort of posturing towards an edginess, edginess that uh, I don't think like actually applies in sort of freedom movie. of criminality a little. But like, what's yeah. cool and sexy about Ocean's Eleven is that they're criminals. Is that they can walk into a bar and take home a lady if they want to because they're sexy criminals. And the current version of Las Vegas is not in line with what is genuinely sexy about Vegas, the concept of Ocean's Eleven, and everything they're doing. And what's funny is when we talk about, like, sexiness in this film, we are not talking about, like, promiscuity. Like, sexiness in this film is how much Danny Ocean loves his (laughs) (laughs) ex-wife. Like, sexiness in this film is, like, Danny Ocean's devotion. Because there is no other, like, romantic or sexual element to this film actually related to the physical act of sex. Like, Mm -hmm. it's only Danny pining after Tess. Um, so in that way, it is very uh, chaste to go back to uh, our misheard word from Andrew. It is just like <laughs> Danny Ocean being a wife guy. Even the concept in this passage you just back. read, that they've had a night of boozy ebullience, that they've been like drinking after work, doesn't feel in line with what we see in the movie. Those guys are not going on benders. They're professionals. Yeah. That's <laughs> what's sexy and fun is that they're like pros mm-hmm. who are doing their job really well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Danny's devotion, something that struck me this time, uh, my, my girlfriend and I were watching the movie and, and neither of us had seen it in a bit. And when uh, Danny and Tess have their second interaction where she's really like, you again, please go away. Uh, it, my girlfriend said, you know, he's she's he's being kind of kind of handsy, right? Like he's grabbing her arms and stuff as she tries to mm. go away for a moment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it, it got me thinking, I I have no idea about the history of this film, how it came together, anything like that. Whether it was a Clooney vehicle from the start or whether he was added in late, it feels like this character could have been someone the audience found legitimately worrisome or dangerous based on a couple things in the script. So specifically that moment where he's like, no, like I really have a, a, everything's fine. And it's okay that you're not happy. I'm here and actually listen to me. I just came to say goodbye. I'm doing a very normal thing, cornering you to say goodbye. Uh, I, I feel like the movie is like towing this line where he could be this more shaded character. We're kind of uncertain about, but instead of doing that, Frank Sinatra instead, well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. They, it, it, especially since it's based off of, the original Ocean's Eleven, where it is a more conflicted character. I wonder if at some point during the process of making this film, they just threw it out because it's George Clooney. And you can't really feel like, what is this guy going to do next? I'm worried. I mean, given how breezy the whole movie is, I don't want to be worried that my hero is kind of a creep. I don't want that. Throw it out. And this is after Out of Sight, right? So, like, Out of Sight is Clooney's, like, first stab at this kind of character. So, like, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know. Clooney's always had this very good ability at being uh, somewhat authoritative without being 
Yeah, without being a creep. So, like, I don't know. I just watched that scene when Tess goes back to him at the end of the movie. Yes, you can't have a guy who's a little iffy, and then you're like, "Oh no, she's gonna get back with him." Like, you don't want that. You want it to be glad. And that scene is also great because there's this moment where Julia Roberts leans into him, thinking that he's gonna kiss her on the mouth, and he kisses her on the cheek. Like, you need that. You need, like, her inability to sort of, like, she can't really control herself around him because there is still something there. Yeah. And the novelization, like, really loses those moments. Like, Mm. another thing I noticed that's not in the book is, like, when they destroy the old hotel and everybody turns around to watch it, but Danny stays watching Tess and Linus stays watching Danny. That's not described in the book, but it's like one of my favorite things that the movie does. Ethan has been holding his mic up for a really long time. And I feel like Ethan wants to talk. Ethan. Oh, I just hold, I hold my mic up. This this is just where it goes. (laughs) In case anything Um, just erupts from him. It is there. It is ready. Exactly. Um, I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, oh, I you. I want to talk about Tess. I want to talk about Terry Benedict, who I do think is dateable, but you understand why he is not what Tess really needs and wants. Mm-hmm. Right? He's like a safe mm-hmm. choice, right? Quote, unquote, compared to I Danny. feel like, can I just read this one thing that I saw on Wiki? Mark yeah. Wahlberg was originally cast as Linus, but left to star in Planet of the Apes and was replaced wow. by Matt Damon. <laughs> Wild. I like Wild stuff. I like him, but <laughs> Pat Damon's perfect. Yeah, Damon's perfect. Hmm. Wahlberg these days, if he had done that movie, he'd be he'd be doing the Boogie Nights thing. He'd be going, it was wrong of me to star in a movie where I picked pockets. It was wrong. I feel <laughs> terrible about that. <laughs> I think well, Wahlberg just had has that like, this, but I'm with you. I mean, he's he's just got the like chip on his shoulder that this character the character kind of needs but like yeah. his, it's so like deeply ingrained in him and and you know matt damon doesn't necessarily have the inherent chip on his shoulder he's more the puppy dog guy so it's just a different a different read mm. i i don't actually think it would be good if danny ocean was dangerous or threatening towards tess i just feel as if there is is the tale of something that maybe got wiped clean still present in the movie a little bit is all i'm saying i don't actually want that I mean, also, I I do think the scene that you're talking about where he's a little bit forceful with her is off-putting to the viewer, but it's because he's doing a, th- he's planting a phone on her. Like, mm-hmm. it should feel a little bit off-kilter. So you're like, what was up with that? And then when you see what's up with that, you're like, oh, he was doing a thing. Fun. <laughs> he was doing a thing. And I saw it, kind of. You know, like, it's part of the game. Roxana, having such a vibrant and, and long relationship to this film... How did you feel diving into the book? How did you feel it squared with your experience of the movie? And uh, how did you feel that it squared with your uh, with your history with the movie? And did you find that it was adding things or that it was rubbing you the wrong way? Hmm. I think we've talked a lot about like stuff that I didn't like, and not even didn't like. Just felt maybe like it didn't tonally fit, um, like all the Vegas descriptions and some of the like, "Hey, look at all these broads" stuff. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think that the book 
gives you more of Tess and like Tess's inner life. Um, and we don't get that in the movie, really. I mean, yes, like I just talked about, you get sort of like in that goodbye scene that she leans into Danny. And of course, there's the great moment where she sees, again, because of Danny, uh, what Benedict says that he would basically like trade her for the money. So you get these like external things and then you see her reactions to them. Um, but in the book, I think you do actually get some of her interiority. There's this like, I don't know how I feel about this moment, but there's like a little part where Terry tells her to wear something different than what she had planned to wear to the fight. And one part of me was like, it feels reductive for your character development for this female character to be related to her clothes. <laughs> but then yes, yes, the other part of it, I was like, well, it does give you insight into the fact that like Terry is controlling in a way that it seemed like Danny never was. So I will take that. Um, so there are like little that moments. Moment feels more about Terry than about Tess. Yes. Like I think the book is doing more work to be like, Terry's kind of a, not a great guy. Yes. Than the movie is doing. Yes. And Tess like becomes the embodiment of like why those things suck. Um, so like, mm -hmm. it's not great, but it did feel like a little bit more of Tess's opinions. Um, because the movie like, maybe I'm, maybe this is my own bias, but I feel like the movie does show her as happy with Terry up until a certain point. Like, during the gallery moment, like, with that painting, in the movie, like, she is very proud. There's nothing about her being cut out of a photo, which the book has. Um, so I think you're right, Hannah. Like, the book does a little bit more to make Terry seem even more of a megalomaniac than the movie does. Um, but yeah, I think I liked the Terry stuff and the Tess stuff, but there are these little moments that Soderbergh puts into the movie that the book doesn't convey, and I just found myself missing those, like missing the sort of the playfulness of his compositions and his tracking shots and all that stuff. I don't think the book is able to capture those. I, I think Terry is a very different character in this book, uh, not necessarily worse in any way, but characterized as being less suave and more of a of a sort of an embarrassing goof uh, he has a lot of lines in the book where he takes like in the scene where he is evaluating the the painting with tess he goes on this whole spiel with the with the guy who sold them the painting right there about isn't she beautiful and he's talking about the painting but he's really talking about tess it all read very cornball to me, and I thought to myself, am I imagining this wrong? Like, is it, is it supposed to be that he's killing it, that he seems so cool as he says this? But Graham continues to add things on uh, later in the book when he has the line that is in the movie about, you know, uh, tell him he can watch the fight at home, surely he has HBO. The next line is something along the lines of, Terry continued to chuckle to himself over what a great jab that was. And I felt like they did that a number of times where in the book he was this, this sort of uh, cheesier, cornier guy who just happened to be in a position of power. And this could not at all be intentional. It's impossible because it would be telling the future. But it made me think that it, this character in the book is weirdly in line with him in 13, mm. who... There's that scene in 13, right, where 
they're like, Terry, are you ready? And he goes, I was born ready. And they look at each other as if to, to say, what a cheesy fucking guy. I, That's interesting. I didn't read it that way. I think the book is making a point to express how like self-involved he is. Mm-hmm. That like okay. his timeline, his schedule, his girl, his painting, uh, the conversation where she's like, do, do you like it? And he's like, I like that you like it. Mm-hmm. That's really about like, I have acquired a woman who has taste and that's what matters to me. I've acquired sure. this painting and I have all these things. And that's, to me, how I felt the book was characterizing him. Like, there was a moment where Tess is getting ready for the night, and he's standing behind her. This is in the movie as well. And she looks at him, and he looks at her, and then he looks at himself. And that's in the book and not in the movie. And that, to me, was like, yep, ding, ding, ding. He's selfish. That's the big sin that this book thinks he has, Mm -hmm. that he can't put her first ever about anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that's the number one reason why she's going to leave him. I mean... I think that the does he make you laugh, he doesn't make me cry is so perfect. <laughs> it's like the line of all time you know, from this like movie it, for me. It shows you why Tess would be pulled to this man. Because he does share a lot of the same qualities as Danny, right? Like, he does sort of need to be in control. He does need to call the shots. But, like, Danny's exception was always Tess. And Terry doesn't have exceptions mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. so like i really he's gonna show up on time yeah. but he doesn't make you laugh Mm-mm. in in that line when that when that line happened when my girlfriend and i were watching the movie she said oof i wouldn't want to be the guy and hear that and i went which guy and she thought about it for a second and went either yeah <laughs> and it's true yeah you yeah, don't want to be the guy who's like I'm detenable. To Danny, yeah. i'm with this guy He's not as good as you, but he doesn't hurt me as badly either. Right. The highs are not as high, but the lows are not as low. And that's good yeah, enough for me. Right. You, you lost it. You screwed the pooch on this one. And I think she, by being too, the lows are too bad. She lives in the hotel. I feel like that would be nice. I'd like to live in the Bellagio. Yeah. That seems beautiful. Eat at the five-star restaurant every, every night, night with your handsome boyfriend who wears sweaters under his blazers all the time. It's Andy Garcia. What? I would do a lot. He's for Andy, Andy Garcia. Garcia. <laughs> Hannah, you uh, are ferociously sexually attracted to layers. It's something I'm, I've. It's something I've been I'm gathering recently. The movie again. There's a. It's clearly set in like autumn or something. It's cool out. Everybody's wearing jackets in Las Vegas. Terry Benedict is constantly wearing a like a three piece suit, but the third piece is a high neck sweater. Even in right. like on fight night, he's wearing a three piece suit where the vest layer is a high neck thing, like I've never seen before in my life. This is on the brain because th- this is happening now. And recently, Hannah just messaged me a photo because we're both watching all the Saw movies. <laughs> that was just Costas Mandalore in a suit and tie and a bulletproof vest, and she was like, "Hot." It is like, hot. It is. <laughs> Look, not to go on a Costas Mandalore side thing here. You can cut this out. But yeah, the way he's styled in those movies when he's in his <clears throat> little cop outfit with his like super starched collars and his like bulletproof vest and the tie and a jacket, 
does something. It's a good look on him with his little curtain bangs. Unfortunately, yeah. I have been. And he's if- like stripping off suspenders and his chest is like huge. Whew, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a whole thing for me. I have been conditioned by crime movies. I'm sorry, Ethan, to find body armor attractive. Sorry to say that word, Ethan. Yeah. We know, body we know armor. When? Like in Black Hat. Back into Ocean's Eleven. Oh, okay. Ooh. I was just going to say in Black Hat when Chris Hemsworth uses the magazines to make body armor. Hot. Back to Ocean's yeah. Eleven. In Ocean's Eleven, when Danny and Linus take off their suits and they're wearing shirts that have like kind of a built-in body armor shape, mm-hmm. very sexy, mm-hmm. very sexy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> speaking of Linus, Linus, and speaking of Terry, as we Linus as we is just my were. most dateable member <clears throat> of the crew. Really, Hannah? I think he is. I, charming. I have a lot of He's trouble. He's professional. He's cute as hell. He's like a little bit needy i don't know i, I like him <laughs> I, I have a lot of trouble separating young damon from how i think of him today I, I find him kind of profoundly not interesting anymore uh which just when he shows up these days i'm like yeah best. that's a that's he a square Hollywood's that they put Did in it? a tie didn't matt damon uh, uh cape for crypto do we not remember his sure. crypto ad i don't no, sorry. I'm with Andrew. He's a guy, I guess, that I, despite his crimes, am ride or die. There you go. Same with Ben Affleck. Like, the two of them together. Just like, you guys can do whatever you want. I love you. <laughs> God bless you I, both. I have to give him the last duel. Like, it is an exception to every complaint I have about him. So, I'm just going to put that You're out there first. last but, duel to Damon? Well, no. Here's my criticism of him, is that in general, I feel that he, he is taking a bunch of roles that are 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 like the acting equivalent of dad rock you know uh your 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 martians your your ford v ferraris these are all things that make that make fathers go that was funny but they don't laugh you know uh the last duel though that one that was some good shit oh, i yeah. think damon rips Dude, the I last think, duel aff like rips yeah i think duel. ben's performance is better than matt's but last duel overall good yeah. Matt Damon like petulantly screaming like listen to me is so fucking good though. I mean Ethan, like, what was that noise? What what what, what do you what do you have to say? <laughs> that was my agreement with the fact that Ben Affleck is much better in the last duel than Ethan. Matt. Oh, I thought he was good. disgusted. Thank you. I love them both. Oh no. Wait, okay, you didn't so like Ben Affleck in the last duel? Me? No, he's Andrew. What? Oh <laughs> no no look this is this has this tangent has gone off the rails. <laughs> I was just saying <laughs> I was making the point that I was about to make a criticism of Matt Damon that could be disproved with an exception that I admit exists. And I was saying, aside from this one movie, I feel as if he is not challenging himself anymore. Mm -hmm. And I am not at all making a statement about relative performances within The Last Duel. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Speaking of Linus and speaking of Benedict, one of my favorite things that the book does is in the moment when Linus goes, hey, I left my beeper, they give Terry this bit of interiority underscoring the crucial decision to leave him behind that I thought was very well written. So, my beeper, he said, I'm sorry, I forgot it. Benedict hesitated. He was in an enormous hurry now. He hated being behind schedule. He needed to be seen making his own grand entry into the boxing arena with Tess on his arm, before the, main, before the main event was called. He had to go instantly, but leaving even a member of the gaming commission alone in his cage was a security breach. 
One glance at the cameras all about, and he decided to risk it. You know how to get back out, Benedict said. Of course, Linus said. Enjoy the fight. Thank you, Benedict said, shaking his hand, then hurrying away. I just thought it was great that Graham went, you know, uh, what is underscoring this, as, as Roxana said before, is just this profound selfishness. He is not so worried about being inconvenienced. He's being worried. Or he, he, I'm having trouble talking tonight. He is worried about losing this moment when he would have an incredible ego boost. He would, he would appear on television. And then similarly, later in the book, the, in this book, there is a winner of the fight. When the lights come back up, uh, Tyson knocks out the other guy. And Terry Benedict feels enraged because he wanted the fight to go many, many rounds to essentially get his casinos the most play on TV that he could possibly get. I, it, it's believable from the movie that selfishness is his issue, and that really comes out with how he loses Tess. But I like that Dewey Graham goes, this is his fatal flaw, and hits it a number of times. It also makes very clear to me that a lot of this heist hinges on the fact that Benedict is a like timing control for he hates mm. to be late. He has a schedule. And if he was not that type of guy, this this heist would could not work as it does in the film. And I appreciate that the book really hammers that home at key points. Like how including the one you just read, Andrew. Like how surprised Tess is when he's late. Like you really get that in the book. Like it's there in the movie, but like it's very clear. It did make me wonder how long they'd been together. Because Danny was away for, what, like three years? But, like, he just got served papers. Like, there is, like, an intimacy to Tess and Terry that I am sort of curious about. Which I don't know if either the movie or the book really delineates. The other thing that I will say, and this is purely a me problem is I prefer that in the movie, I don't think the fighters are, like, real fighters, or at least, like, they're not named, they're not to the level right, of, like, right, Mike right. Tyson, and I prefer that. <laughs> I didn't like the specificity in the book for some reason. It, like, took me out of it a little bit, actually, um, whereas I liked the sort of, like, it's just, like, two dudes fighting, it's a big fight, like, but there isn't this additional layer of, like, names that we recognize. It's very well, strange to see actual names like mm -hmm. this in a book, in a novelization. Because usually we have heard authors say, like, you can't guarantee that they're going to get the rights to someone's name mm -hmm. or to a song or to whatever. So you just don't put it in the book. So I was very surprised to see how specific that is. Mm -hmm. It is a little jarring. Mm -hmm. It made me well, wonder. I wonder about oh, the... Ahead. Well, there's there's the whole opening in the movie with mm -hmm. Topher Grace and all of the yeah. WB stars, which is not present in the those are fake the book, people. Which makes me, mm -hmm. In the book, it makes me wonder what the screenplay looked like mm -hmm. for that scene. They probably didn't say like slugline, you know, Topher mm -hmm. Grace, a Topher Grace type. <laughs> yes, Topher Grace reminding us all that he exists. Thanks, Topher. Thanks for not oh, being embarrassing. Topher, Thank you, my beloved Topher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was that was a letdown reading the book though. I did kind of want Topher Grace to be in this book. Yeah. Why isn't Topher part of the crew in Ocean's 13? Why not? Who else is it? It's Topher, Shane West. 
Who else? Um, Josh something. Joshua Jackson. Right. Oh, Josh, Josh Jackson. Jackson. He's my favorite, right. actually. I'm living a different life than you. Josh Jackson. Oh, you're a fool. Get to know Joshua Jackson. <laughs> yeah, he's Barry great. Watson and Holly Marie Combs. Barry Watson from Seventh Heaven. Holly mm-hmm. from yeah. Charmed. Is it all WB people? Or no, Topher is Fox. Okay. <laughs> But it's all like hot young things. Well, I miss when the WB was a thing. This actually is very nostalgic now that the CW no longer exists. <laughs> it's so nice to see Joshua Jackson with like his little earring. Like this was a time for him. But really? If only he was like bleach blonde. I was going to say, was it the, made me want to rewatch <laughs> Cruel Intentions. <laughs> mm, urban legends. Mm-hmm. The skulls. A couple different thoughts oh, yeah. about the fight. Uh, okay, fine, Andrew. The, okay, yeah. <clears throat> Okay. No, no. Look, I <laughs> You don't want us to list cute Joshua Jackson rolls back and forth? Fine. <laughs> Look, I would be in a much better mood if we had had a very different discussion about a different Josh and his brother Benny earlier. <laughs> but generous, I am feeling not. <laughs> Regarding the fight, I agree with you, Hannah, that it is best practice to not include real names and novelizations. And while... That is the practice of friend of the podcast and novelization author Kyle Fegley. I actually don't think it is what is happening across novelization. Hmm. I think people I mean, are like, like remember taking when we read A Life Less Ordinary, wrong. which has an extremely on the note, whatever musical number in it, and the scene doesn't work without that song. And oh, they you're right. Couldn't assure that they would get the rights to that song for the novel, and so we just had to suffer. Yeah, but there was that one thing in Blood, uh, Blood, Blood, whatever that guy's name is, Bloodborne, Blood, Bloodline, Bloodshot. There was that one thing that Gavin Smith wrote that was like, uh, (laughs) in this song, a Queens of the Stone Age, or in this scene, a Queens of the Stone Age song was blaring, right? And it's like, just not in the movie. But I wonder if the fight was changed uh, for the movie to anonymous people, because if this guy is real, the guy fighting Mike Tyson, Lewis, whatever. If he's real, I wonder if he didn't want to even be fictitiously decked. I, I assume that that's why they throw out the whole the fight conclusively ends thing. Also, Roxanne, I wanted to say that this edition of Mike Tyson really supports your argument that Dewey Graham is time traveling back from writing the Hangover novelization. He's time traveling. <laughs> he's doing it. Shout out to this man for figuring it out. Yeah, it was very, it was very uh, bizarre. I feel like the person he's fighting is a real fighter, but I am not a hundred percent sure. I'd have to double. I, I have a question. That felt familiar to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roxana, I didn't ask you hmm. up top, and and maybe I should have. I didn't ask you whether you had ever read a novelization before. Um, but at the very least, this is not a thing that you do with regularity. Is that fair no, to say? definitely not a thing I do with regularity. I feel like maybe I read a Star Wars or a Star Trek one, like, mm-hmm. in my childhood. <laughs> I have no memory of it. Definitely not something I do normally. Um, so it was, like, sort of a so, trip. Something that's striking me as we discuss this book mm-hmm. is that Hannah and I and and Ethan I think are are making this book sound as if it is a, a profusion of bold and interesting choices. Are and we? if you look at no I just mean from the fact that our our conversation you could listen to this episode and and our conversation is and he changed this which I didn't like and he changed this which I did. Right. Uh 
if you look at the, the, the Amazon or the Goodreads reviews for this book, it is pretty uniformly fans of the film saying this is essentially the screenplay written down. This is this it makes no changes. It's kind of worth it if you need a little bit more. And so, Roxanne, I wanted to ask, as someone who doesn't generally read these, what was your feeling about the merits of the book as you were going through it? Did this feel like an empty exercise or did it feel rewarding? Hmm. I don't think it felt empty because I do agree, as we've all discussed, that it does more with the characters than I anticipated. And I think if it, I don't agree necessarily with the, like, it's just a screenplay. I do think it adds more uh, touches. And also, as we've been discussing, more Vegas. Although I don't think the Vegas it adds aligns with the movie. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it's most interesting as sort of a, uh, like, hybrid between what the two movies are. And I think, like, it's clunkiness in that Vegas stuff just, to me, shows how much Soderbergh sort of, like, moved away from the original. Um, And that, I thought, was, like, valuable in thinking about, like, this movie and the original movie and how they differ um, and how much, like, this version does take things in a different direction that, like, 12 and 13 then continue um and honestly i read the book saturday and then rewatched the movie on sunday so it's not like the book made me think like i never want to revisit you know it's like (laughs) yeah 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 it did enough i i I just wanted to ask that because i worry that we get a little too novelization brained where we're we're, we've seen things that are so much drier than this mm-hmm. that th- this by no means feels like, you know, the worst thing we've ever read or, or the least liberties someone's taken. Mm-hmm. So I just want to make sure that we're in line with like a normal person. Yes. If I may say, I think this thing is pretty dry. Interesting, Hannah. What did you what did you want more of or maybe less of? I think to me, there are many moments where dialogue is happening with no comment from the author. Yes. There isn't insight into character. There isn't, here's what someone was thinking behind this line. Or, uh, you know, their face made a shape that was might give you a hint at something. So there's very little of that mm-hmm. to me in general. And I could have used a little bit more. I mean, as much as the movie, you kind of get a sense of all of these guys even though they don't all have equal screen time, you do feel like nobody's left behind in characterization. In the book, I kind of did. You know, I, I feel like I didn't get as good a sense of the people, where if I think if I had read the book without watching the movie ever, I wouldn't be able to tell you who's who mm. and what their jobs are necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it, the movie's so good at, like, giving all these guys something unique. And I don't think the book matches that kind of at all that I think I would lose track of who's who doing what in some ways just reading the book. I think the book leaves Rusty behind for sure. Mm-hmm. And like Rusty's my favorite. So like I'm biased in that way, but Rusty does. Rusty has the least to do within the heist. Yes. Rusty does spend a lot of That's the insane. That's, That's fucking true. insane. I don't know what that means. He is. About. 
Well, it's well. His it, only I guess job I'm, is to pretend to be a doctor. No, no, he is. He has three roles. Let me think about this. He's the doctor. Then he's on the phone. Then he's in the SWAT team. Here's my that thing. All feels kind of like one. I role think to Rusty. Me. I, I think Rusty spends a lot of the movie like hanging out because all he doesn't need to do right andrew like he's like right. he's acting in those three roles right like he's acting as the doctor like he's an anonymous phone call and then like he's acting as the swat team leader so like he doesn't do a lot of stuff in the two weeks leading up to it like he doesn't need to practice his jump he doesn't need to trail danny because linus trailing danny is like all bullshit anyway like, he doesn't need to do what Frank does or, like, what Livingston does. Like, Rusty just gets to hang out and eat snacks, which is why he's so beloved. <laughs> he's, like, a moral support guy yeah. for two weeks. He's, like, just, like, Mr. Team Leader. Everybody likes and trusts him. Then he shows up night of. Kills it. Still standing around. Kills it. Smashes it. Like. Does a great job. Leaves. Yeah. I'm just, I think he has the least to do in the heist. And the book is having to do a lot of machinery to get you to know what's happening, that Rusty does sort of fall to the wayside for a lot of that. Again, to go back to vibes, I, like Rusty adds vibes mm -hmm. in those two weeks by like leaning on walls and eating snacks and like having his little sarcastic Brad Pitt faces. And that's, Hannah's <laughs> right, that that's the sort of stuff that the book does not capture very well, I don't think. Mm-hmm. The moment I, I totally where... agree with you guys. I just want to push back on the idea that he, that in the actual execution of the heist, he is at all lacking. He does way I'm more than he's not doing like, as much as everybody else. He's, he's not he's rappelling got, like, down elevators. He's not he, it, blowing up half of Las Vegas. He's not doing like technical camera stuff. He's just like chilling, and then he shows up. Like it's just less. It's not bad. It's also he is important. ahead. Uh, Labor-wise, he is ahead of Frank and Elliot Gould. Oh, I think Frank does. Sure, but he's st that's still bottom 10. And Frank has done a lot of press Bottom stuff. 10 of 11? <laughs> <laughs> I agree that during the actual, during the course of the heist, during the two weeks of heist, he is doing more than Ruben. But I think that's the only guy he's doing. Yeah, more than. Ruben's like Here's not doing anything. So Ruben doesn't even count. And it's rusty. Yeah. I don't think you can I don't think you can say that he's in that anyone's in the bottom 10 and here's why out of 11. Here's why because for me the the top no argument is a tie between the Malloys. The Malloys oh, are showing up in every stage yeah. of the heist yes. and they are just different guys every 5 minutes. Yes. 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 Okay, I'm just saying I think Rusty is doing like the second least. You're not going to argue fine. with me. Honestly, I don't even think Danny is doing that much. Like, I love Danny. But, like, Danny's also just vibing. He's like a distraction. He repels down. He's right. doing all the money swapping in the vault. I'll give Danny some points. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I meant, he gets punched in the face quite a bit. Yeah, I meant in the, in the like, points. preceding two weeks. Oh. Yeah, I feel like Danny Definitely is not just... not doing a ton. Yeah, not doing a lot. He came up with the idea. God bless him. That's it. Doing the backbreaking organizational yes, labor. Yeah, yes. He's finding the people. Yes. Rusty is eating uh, let me pivot. dumplings. Bless his heart. I want to speaking say one of the more team. thing. Speaking oh, no. Of go Rusty. ahead. Um, and speaking of how the book cannot capture the vibes. In early on, when 
Danny pitches it to Rusty mm-hmm. and they have that exchange. It's like, you've been practicing that a little. Did I rush it? It feels like I rushed it, which in the movie is all vibes. It's all Clooney and Pitt being cute and charming together. This is in the book. It's on page 36 and 37. And it just feels like fucking nothing because mm-hmm. yep. it can't capture the magic. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff like that, that like the movie is so movie star based and vibes. And he's, you know, Rusty's snacking and leaning and wearing like colorful shirts and shit. And that just cannot be captured in the book. And I really missed it. The It makes it all feel just a little more flat. The scene where they're arguing about how many people... They're not even arguing because Rusty doesn't say anything. But when Danny is asking mm-hmm. if they have enough guys... Like in the movie, Rusty One is like... Rusty's just like slumped over on a bar top. <laughs> he never like moves. Yeah, staring out into space. Right. Very funny. Danny just like senses his disapproval. So yeah, I think I think you're probably not probably. I think you are right that like some of these character dynamics don't fully work because we don't get like the little things that Clooney and Pitt and everybody else bring to who these characters are. Dewey Graham. Right. We read this one other book of his, Sneakers. I want to talk about Sneakers just a little bit, both book and movie. Two thoughts about Sneakers. First one, about the movie. It's wild that a movie with a similar, not exactly the same, subgenre came out in 1997. Dewey Graham wrote the novelization. This movie comes out four years later. Dewey Graham writes the novelization. These movies feel like they were made 25 years apart. I yes. think because. Uh, it, 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 the the closest I can come to understanding it is that Sneakers is the tail end of this almost Cold War thriller pasted into a, a heist format, right? And this movie is 20 years old and should look 20 years old and should feel 20 years old, but its cultural impact is so great that we have been trying to mimic it endlessly and thus it still feels current. I think that Ocean's Eleven looks 20 years old and feels 20 years old in a good way. I like it. It's it's ancestor, whatever, it's prodigy is Now You See Me, which I hate. (laughs) I don't like those movies. I think they are trying to capture the slickness and the trickery and the fun and the charm of Ocean's Eleven, but unsuccessfully to me. Um hate those movies, and I, Maybe Anna. if they looked t- older. I hate them so then... much. They're so bad. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we agree. Yeah, they're so yeah, bad. Yeah, I'm not into My, I have dear, dear friends who love them very much. No. And I'm, like, I'm just going to assume from what I know it. about you two that it's the best movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> it's just strange for me to think about anybody feeling that strongly about they're those so movies. Bad. They're just, just they're, they're like airplane no. movies. They're like the- and they're trying to pull the same kind of tricks of who's in on it, who's... What's happening in the heist? Ooh, we gotcha. Mm-hmm. We didn't explain it all to you, and now there's new info. But it's it, the spirit is not fun, good. You're part of the gang. The spirit is like, gotcha, suckers. I mean, it's asking. And I hate it. It's <laughs> subbing in like the eight. <laughs> this is, is going to sound so terrible. It's making me accept Jesse Eisenberg instead of George Clooney, and I won't do that. I refuse. Yeah, we were talking about should Danny Ocean be a little bit scuzzy? What if he was Jesse Eisenberg? Yeah. Would we feel the same way about him? We would not. <laughs> we, what if his crew was full of like Dave Franco? Would you feel confident that these are good guys? Not really. Yeah, I and mean, I think this movie is like, and the other, you know, and the two that follow it, we're very much still in the era of movie stars. Like it was very much still 
charisma can make up for like some dialogue that doesn't necessarily make sense or like a heist that we can't actually track all the parts of arguably like there is still something to how all of the pieces of this movie come together that feel very tangible the other thing i'll say and again this is just like my bias is like i'm sure this movie has cgi and visual effects but there's nothing that happens in this movie that is so like unbelievable or like visually poorly put together that it distracts me like everything feels very graspable and physical um in a way that i think has held up is yen's jump real because it looks yes. so good. I think it's time. real. It's a real acrobat. Yeah. And if it's not okay, well, exceptional work done. It's nothing to do with done. the Miz effects discussion. <laughs> yeah. If it's not. If- what about, we, we see the uh, the casino being blown up uh, sort of out the window, uh, Ethan, don't we? Maybe they actually blew the up a casino. We don't TV. know. They, they may well have. But again, it's not, it. it's not like the focal point of the scene necessarily. It's not something that like yeah. is going to take me out of it. Because we're seeing like Basher's reaction. It's like the slyness of Basher watching it on the TV when it's happening through the window behind him. And mm-hmm. like the Danny Linus Tess interaction in the crowd. Um, so yeah, there's always this like very strong foregrounding of what the characters are doing and prioritizing and Vegas just happens to be like, you know, this beautiful gaudy place in the background rather than a That's real. That's why it works so well that the boxers are unnamed. Yes. They're just background. They're just color. background. Yeah, exactly. I liked Dewey Graham's writing and sneakers. And I think I have a theory that he must've been on a shorter leash for this book. They must have been put in the heel to this guy's neck because yeah. he, when he get, when Sneakers he flexes, has huge passages of backstory mm, that are have no place. Massive, in the movie. massive, inventive, fun character backstory, and there's zero of that. In Some, sometimes they would feel completely and patently wrong, <laughs> but in a way that was such a big swing, it was itself fun. Mm-hmm. If this, if Dewey Graham was allowed to do or felt like doing what he did on Sneakers with this book. There would be passages in this thing, such as before the Malloy brothers uh, came on to work with Danny Ocean, they got really into making balloon animals, but then became too attracted to the animals and felt they should stop. <laughs> it was just I mean, stuff like that where you go, would that, is that right? Is that I don't know, but he I put it in there. I know from reading this book that Basher is English, <laughs> which is yes, kind of yes. the defining trait of... <laughs> the character and the performance and what Cheadle is doing. And it is not present in this novelization. But it seems like the one thing they allowed him to do is to write uh, philosophical ruminations on Las Vegas. And I thought they were (laughs) decently well-written when he wasn't going, you know, bring back the sex. Right. This this, uh, passage on 67, it says, uh, looming out of an expanse... Looming out of an expanse of harsh wilderness where no city was called for, where no trade routes or rivers had ever crossed, where no mineral or hydrocarbon wealth had been discovered, where no water source sprang from the ground or crops or cattle gathered to market. In a nowhere spot on a nowhere landscape was a city made in the 1940s by a clique of men with some spare change. Of course, we know it was actually Mo Green. 
mobsters as city planners. They wanted a city for gambling and sin in an overwhelmingly Puritan country. They picked a state that in the beginning was a mining colony populated almost solely by single men, where gambling had already been legal for three quarters of a century. It was still a saloon society dominated by hustlers and cowboys who were blithely uninterested in moral reform. The perfect spot. They made a lights-flashing, skyline-pulsing neon fortress that left good taste behind, but invited folks to spend like fools on all the most corrupting, forbidden, damnation-inducing fun things they could think of. It was a work of genius. Graham, Graham, Graham. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when he occasionally sprinkles in a fun little a little touch, and I like the little touches. Like when they're waiting around to steal the pinch, and Linus is like in the back of the van having the worst night of his life because I Virgil and Turk are playing these awful games. And the little detail that we get is that they're doing like 20 questions and then math games. And then they did so they did 26 games of here's the first line name the work and author then a rousing new game of describe the crime slash name the serial killer then a timed game of world capitals like those little touches of like here's how awful it is for linus i was like i feel that thank you dewey like linus (laughs) sitting in the back of that van clawing his hair out deciding he'd rather go risk his freedom by breaking into a place he's not supposed to be right now and sit with these guys for another second i felt it you know what though it did make me realize that like they're actually very smart. That's a terrible thing to say. Yes, yes. <laughs> but like, there's such, they're Park. like very earnest, sort of like dopey, broy idiots in the movie, which I enjoy very much. But like, one of the games that they're doing is like, they're just doing math. Like you said, math. The game changed to astrophysics? What? <laughs> <laughs> These dudes? It's fun. Yeah. That's uh, that's a good time. The, the I like that the, most of their like roles, and they have many roles in the heist, and most of them are pick a fight with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. feels like a legitimate risk in the heist that someone could come up to them during the card thing and go, "Weren't you the balloon guys from a second ago?" Because that camera is ten feet away. Right. I remember you. They sort of change their hair every so often, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they definitely could have done I do think more. Maybe they should be wearing more funny wigs. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, one thing about this film that I think is so commendable is when they do those little jokes that are basically set up punchline, they kill me every time. So the two I'm thinking of are, uh, uh, am I alive? Am I a human? Evil Knievel. I mean, <laughs> just so funny. And then the, the other one being uh, just Khan standing at the, at, at the party and going, uh, you ever get a to Utah Saul? <laughs> I, think you'd, I think you'd really like Prova. I think you'd do very well there. And Saul's face is just, please, I wish this man would stop talking to me. <laughs> I mean, all of them standing around drinking is such a Ocean's Eleven sixty one moment. I I wish we had almost a little more of it. It's so fun. Even like Ruben going to Linus and being like, "You like Chicago? Mm-hmm. Treat you well. Get in the fucking house." Mm-hmm. Another good, funny little rhythmic beat. Mm-hmm. But H- Hannah, it's it's the 
one of the biggest connective tissues, that feeling of, of a bunch of dudes hanging out, but it's also illustrative of the biggest difference between the movies, which is the, the, the original Ocean's Eleven is here's 11 cool-looking dudes standing in a room, and it is cool, full stop. This movie <laughs> goes, here's 11 guys standing around in a room, and when they talk, it gets weird. Yeah. <laughs> and they are not necessarily well-suited to each other. That's the Soderbergh of it all. Mm, good point. Interesting point. Like, I wish there was a scene where they all downgraded went bowling mid-heist, like mid-planning, though. Like, I love that in the 61 Ocean's Eleven. Like, oh, let's go bowling <laughs> and talk about robbing casinos. And I think that's why, like you said earlier, Hannah, that's why the connective tissue of, like, they're all just hanging out and drinking and, like, reminiscing about Vegas in this book does not feel true to the fact mm. that, like, they clearly are not really friends in that way in the movie nor do they have like the freedom to do that like they're all basically working like 24 hours a day <laughs> in the two weeks that's why rusty's eating that's all why the rusty's time. eating he doesn't have time to sit down at a restaurant no my man's metabolism is working overtime so yeah like those sort of like glad hanging like let's chill sections of the book just don't work for me for exactly that reason the awkwardness is key mm. to the movie I'm convinced. Just because I can't fit it elsewhere, I'll say here that the thing I referred to earlier where Dewey Graham attempts the cuts from the movie, presumably because they're in the script, presumably the script goes, as they talk about Livingston, we also see Livingston doing blah, blah, blah. Uh, They have no sort of formatting flair in the book. Mm -hmm. So it's... Just one line of Rusty and Danny talking about Livingston. Then we're with Livingston with just a normal paragraph break. It's, it's very jarring. I have to say, while an interesting touch for Graham to, to do it that way, also bad. D- very disorienting and, and doesn't at all you didn't convey the, the editing. Like, the space, the line, the single space line clear enough for you? <laughs> Is that the passage? It's a passage that's doing that. No, no, where it's but it's like the, paragraph, the, and then there's like a blank space, no, I, and then another space. You know, I'm you, not you saying the book montage. is Finnegan's Wake. There are no, I know. paragraph I'm just breaks in it. If that was not clear enough for you to understand the montaging happening, like you well, want I, something well, more. I'm just asking for clarification. No, I, I look. I don't have an example right on hand, but I guarantee you there are parts of this book where line by line they're doing paragraph breaks without the space, right? And so it's just back and forth as if it was dialogue, but going to all the people they're talking about recruiting. It happens again, even though I don't have the page, it happens again. It happens again when Rusty describes to Terry Benedict how they're going to get the bags out of the casino. Now, I think of this in my mind as the Truman Show cut, because the thing I love about the Truman Show, and this movie does it as well, is when something is being described and as opposed to it being and this is how it will happen it's once the description is over the event is over right yeah i mean these do this is the passage where rusty is saying here's what you're gonna do 224 they have the little spaces Mm. i think this is also on 237 when they're doing like revealing how the heist came together you do get like larger paragraph breaks 
Wow. Well, what am I talking about even? Anyway, I don't think <laughs> sorry, book. Andrew. I, I don't think it's graceful. Like I think that's the intention. Like I agree with Hannah. That's the intention of those paragraph breaks. But like I don't know if I hadn't seen the movie, how much I would have done that in my mind, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't know I how transferable really it hard. is to conceptualize without the movie. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't, conce- I have no idea what reading this would be like if I'd never seen the movie. Mm-hmm. I think it would be hard. I think Andrew, like you're saying, the montage elements would be hard to follow and confusing if you would never I'm gonna seen find proof. I wanna ask- To have some context. I wanna ask Ethan and Hannah, cause you guys said that you don't think the heist fully comes together. Do you think the book does a better or worse job of explaining the parts of the heist and like how they pull them off? The only thing that I'm constantly like, wait, what about is the switch of the fake vault. What's what's happening in the fake vault? What's happening in the real vault? At what moment? Mm-hmm. And what? how did they end up with actually with the money? Mm-hmm. All of the pieces leading up to that make sense to me. And then I start getting confused. And I don't, it doesn't really matter. Then they walk out with the money. It's in the SWAT. It's the, okay. I don't understand where the fake vault comes into it. I mean, they fake blow up the fake, they real blow up the fake vault, but they don't blow up the real vault, or they do also blow up the real vault. I think they blow up. They blow up the real vault. Yeah. Okay. So what are they doing in the fake vault? In the fake. Robbing it. In the fake vault, they like, the fake vault is footage of them like tying up the guards and threatening the guards with guns and like loading all the money into bags that are marked with X's okay. on them. So because like Because meanwhile what they're doing in the real vault is just pulling all the money out into the hallway so they're ready to stack it in the SWAT bags. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So that's like why Benedict figures out, right, that like it was fake footage because it's missing the like Bellagio seal. Um, but like mm-hmm. that's when Livingston like patches the footage so that they don't mm-hmm. actually see anything that's happening in the real vault. And I think they blow up both because I thought they that, do. Yeah. Because I thought that like there, there's a shot of Brad Pitt throwing the grenade in the real vault. Right. Uh, the, the this is making me well no let me take this again this discussion really highlights that dewey graham could have cleared this shit up because in the movie it is not totally clear what the real vault and the fake vault what their relationship to each other is because they as hannah you say it they do essentially still do a lot of things they do to the fake to the real but it's important that terry benedict not see them pushing the money which isn't in a container out into the hallway right and it feels like dewey graham could have made that clear but he does not give a single word to it Mm -hmm. i wonder if he also didn't understand it and was like i can't figure out how to make this jive without giving up the game before you're supposed to know what's happened i think the thing that is confusing is and and maybe again this is like a piece i'm missing but like theoretically (laughs) theoretically someone who is like pretending to be the robbers loads the duffel bags full of like the sex work flyers 
into the van that is then driven away by the robot. So, like, where do the duffel bags with those flyers come from? Because they're not coming from the real vault. Yep. Right. I was wondering about that, too. But the real vault also has call girl flyers in it, which makes this even more confusing. Because when the SWAT guys come in, they're holding bags full of things. And I assume they just swap out maybe the money for the flyers. Okay, maybe. And walk back out with full bags. Okay, okay. Where are the X, the bags with the X's on them come from full of flyers? Don't know. Don't know where those flyers come from. I think we learned in the book, too, that the bags that they're walking around with are meant to have their weapons right. in them. Uh, that was a question I had after rewatching the movie was, does the SWAT team have a pretext for why they're carrying double bags? Presumably you could do that because, like, who would stop you? Hey, hi, I'm just gambling. I was wondering, what's in your duffel bag, well, and because, Mr. Man like, with Gun? The fake, the fake vault video, they do have guns. So I would imagine that, like, a SWAT team hearing that they have weapons in the vault would come in with weapons of their own. Um, and I guess you don't want to have the weapons out when you're walking across the casino floor. Right. That makes sure. sense. Yeah. Right. Maybe the duffel bags are like inside out. Someone asked Steven. Somebody sent Steven a nice message. You mean like I one of the questions. duffel bags is anger and one of the duffel bags is sadness? Yes. <laughs> yes. Just like that. <laughs> um, I want to talk briefly about the end. The ending. Go. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, when they've done it and the movie has that beautiful Claire de Lune sequence, they're standing in front of the fountains, they all one by one leave. In the book, we get the sort of walking sequence that ends Ocean's 1961, which I appreciated Dewey Graham being like, I guess this is what the end of this is going to be like. They're walking down the strip and they one by one peel off. And we get a difference of who the last people are. It's always Linus and somebody. But here it's, in the book, it's Rusty. In the movie, it's Saul. Interesting little change. Because from what IMDb, IMDb trivia <laughs> says, it's that Soderbergh was like, the, the last person to leave has to be Saul and Linus. And everybody else just kind of wander off when you feel right. So that feels like that was decided and planned and i wonder what dewey graham had to work with that he made a totally different choice yeah that's hmm. well i think i i, I kind of like that it's rusty that, that doesn't feel wrong it doesn't feel wrong but i sort of like the movie's version more if we're doing like the oldest member of the crew and the youngest member of the crew i sort of like yeah. that thematically Maybe they were like, look, we haven't given Rusty anything to do in this book. <laughs> Let's just have him hang out at the fountain <laughs> for a longer period of time. <laughs> I feel like that's a, an example, Hannah, of Graham adding something that is kind of flavorless and doesn't matter. I hate to say. like, And, and I, I had this complaint about him with sneakers, which I, I enjoyed just because it was so uh, bold in its weird choices. But a lot of the weird choices were completely uh, meaningless, right? Uh, sneakers would go, oh, a character's clandestinely having sex here? Well, another character's clandestinely having sex around the corner, right? It was just like added something. And there's a, there's a passage. I won't take the time to read it. But there's a passage where they pull up behind the casino to do the pinch and 
It's basically like some raccoon snacked on stuff in the dumpster. The stuff in the dumpster was good. Then they left. (laughs) This one to me, maybe it's a meaningless change, but it's clearly a thoughtful thing. Like, why would it be Rusty and Linus? Because these are two guys who have respect and love Danny Ocean by the end of it. Mm. They're Danny Ocean's guys. And Rusty has always been, and Linus has become one, and they look at each other and they're like, yep, we know each other now. We are the same guy to Danny Ocean in some ways. The one of us is a long-term boyfriend and the other one is like a, a, a new fling or whatever. Like, clearly Dewey Graham was like, who should be last with Linus? Rusty, mm, sure, mm, got mm-hmm. got it. And that's what he was going for. Like, it's not like it was a, a meaningless, thoughtless thing, I think, seems to me. Yeah, I'm convinced. My, my, my thing, which is a good example of one thing, does not really have to do with your thing, which is a good oh, example sure. of another thing. <laughs> yeah, Great. we're both right about okay, what's parts of this. Let's talk about my, my favorite character, Lyman Zerga. What is with <laughs> Graham's treatment of his collapse? Very bizarre. Well, I mean, to me, I think when I'm watching the movie for the very first time, I think perhaps Saul, who has health issues, is genuinely having a health crisis. Yeah. And that's part of the trick and the rug pull, rug pull that the movie and the scene is doing with you, the viewer, and the characters who don't know that he's part of the con. And the book just has to try and play the same surprise. I don't know I, what you mean by your problem with it. No, no, I, I hear that. I... I, I <laughs> I get that. I, I wonder if it's just, this isn't the way to do it. It feels like the book for a page, instead of having some sleight of hand, it feels like the book for a page goes, he truly, for real, is collapsing. I mean, the line, you, Saul could no longer handle that. the anxiety. I know, I know, but like, can, if, you're, if you're head hopping like this and you go into Saul's head, can you say he could no longer ha- handle the anxiety? His system went into overload. That's not a trick where later I go, oh, one thing was happening, I thought, but it was actually another. That's a lie. I don't what's the know responsibility what's... of the author here? Sure. I don't know what's happening in that moment to co- Like, is he just acting? Right. Because he's pretty fucking sweaty, too. You know, is there some actual thing that they have done to produce this physical effect in him? And it's in his antacids. tums or whatever he's doing. Because Danny gives him doing. a new role of the antacids. Right. So in order to pull off believably that he is having a cardiac failure, they've given him something in his antacids and he's experiencing that. Hmm. I think is maybe what's happening in that moment. It's not clear or explicit in the book or movie. That may be headcanon. Head mm-hmm. That makes sense to me, though. It just feels like he wrote a thing to to mislead me that was straight up not what was happening. And then he went, ha 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 ha, I actually, it was a trick. I don't know if it's the only time the, the book does that, though. Like, I don't, when else does that happen? I mean, I don't know. I will find one if I can. But I didn't necessarily <laughs> think, you know, like, I feel like it has done that... I feel like that's when it's really, like, attempting to be the narrator. Let me see if I can find something to try to back it up. All right, here's my favorite thing in the entire book. Benedict is watching his own casino get robbed. It says, he studied the men. 
They gave away nothing as far as their identity was concerned. They were too well covered. Abruptly, Benedict said, Where's Zerga? He was not in the security center where Benedict had left him. No immediate answer came. Mr. Zerga, Benedict repeated when he saw Walsh's sheepish look. With the briefcase? <laughs> He's... He died, Walsh said. <laughs> Benedict shot him a slow, sideways glance. I mean, really funny. Really funny. He died. He's amazing. He died. He died. He died. He died. <laughs> Terry. Terry knows how to laugh. Our guy. He knows how to laugh. <laughs> Not how to make anybody else laugh or cry. I mean, I I think I'm down to pretty much just the the little details. I, th- this book has Reuben be duped by the Danny's out thing just for fun. Why not? It explains why Basher is covered in shit, a thing the movie doesn't. <laughs> it says that after they after the city guys fixed the electricity in the sewer, they turned back and saw Basher, and he jumped into a river of sewer whatever. <laughs> I, it made me go, why did I never question that? Right, yeah. But also it made me think, like, there are certain things I took at face value that I didn't need contextualization for. <laughs> it's like... He was in a sewer, enough. Yeah, That's enough he for was me. in a sewer, there was poop, I get it. Like, you know, this waterfall. There's also similarly a detail where he comes back covered in shit and Linus has to hose him off yes. in a corner. He's hosing him <laughs> in the corner of the warehouse. Like, no, shut funny up. Funny little detail. No, absolutely not. Don't need it, but a little funny. I mean, it's like the Tess Donna Karen outfit detail. Where, like, I guess mm-hmm. it does something, but ultimately it doesn't really change that much. It's just a little... Mm-hmm. Addition. Hannah Blackman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are that guy working with uh, Livingston on the FBI mob squad. Yeah. <clears throat> you try to play with one of his wires and he yells at you uh, about how, you know, does he grab your gun and wave it around? And right. it just I doesn't sit that. well with you at all. Okay. You, you have kind of a thin skin. You're not good with criticism. Your ascent to the ranks of the FBI was improbable, but hard one. In order to get revenge on this man that you feel has wronged you, you steal the book he brought to read on his lunch break. And it is Ocean's Eleven by Dewey Graham. Mm-hmm. Do you think you'd have a good life? Having stolen that and being able to read it. Well, it sounds like I'm a really petty person, so probably life is going to be a little bit sour for me no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think this novelization of Ocean's Eleven is improving my life or enriching it. I think it's pretty dry. I think it's pretty basic. Uh, it's definitely not more fun than the movie, and it's not trying to be, and I kind of wish it was attempting to match the fun, playful, lightheartedness uh, of the film through its writing, through its character details. It really just feels like nothing to me. Um, I mean, it was not a hard read. It didn't hurt me. 
but it also doesn't mention Terry Benedict's fun sweaters. So it just doesn't, you know, uh, no, this one's not elevating my life and I'm not sharing it with others as an interesting read. Ethan Warren. Mm -hmm. The people on Twitter and other social media that are saying movies should not have sex scenes and whatnot, they come to rule the world. And they discover that you, throughout your entire life, were opposed to any movie involving crime. They love you for this. You are the moralistic... uh, 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 example that they all strive to be and thus they make you president of earth you are able to dictate what books are allowed and what books will be burned in the new era era (laughs) of ethical living would you choose oceans 11 by dewey graham knowing what you know well it seems like a really good way to like suppress the uh enlightenment of of the people that i'm trying to oppressed so that would be good um but i'm kind of um uh, <clears throat> excuse me i'm, I'm kind of in hannah's boat on this one um i don't think this is a particularly special book um it's it's like on the thicker side for some of the ones that i've been reading lately and so i was kind of hopeful that like there was going to be maybe some like danny and tess backstory in here um or, or other just sort of inventions and flourishes and there's there's very very little um like i said i kind of was excited every time i turned to a new chapter because i was like he's gonna get two pages here to run wild Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and make things up about las vegas um but aside from that it's just it really is just such a march through the uh the script of the the movie from my perspective so um not one of my favorites we don't even learn why danny went to prison in the first place (laughs) (laughs) they do give us a a, when he the things he decides to expound on are so weird we do get (laughs) when when he asks about phil who he wants to have on the on the heist and uh brad pitt does the oh he died i dated his wife thing we do get a paragraph where he goes and here are all of phil's crimes and i'm sitting there (laughs) going what on earth are danny ocean's crimes Phil, I don't know this man from Adam. Phil. Don't tell me about Phil. <laughs> Roxana yes. Dottie. Yes. You borrowed $100,000 and sent it off to Ethiopia to get a rare book delivered to you in a fish. Mm-hmm. You're going to try to sell this book at uh, auction uh, and hopefully pay back the people you owe who are constantly hounding you mm-hmm. and uh, physically attacking you. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this book, given its contents, would go for a high enough price that you could make that money back? Like that it would fetch me over $100,000? <laughs> you guys bought this yeah. book for me and it was like eight bucks. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Definitely look Closer at the premise. That's the point here. Look closer. <laughs> you have essentially <laughs> cast me in Uncut Gems Dose. And I would prefer. Un. un, un I was like, print- what story is this? I would. Oh. Un, unbound books. Yeah. I would prefer the gigantic opal. The opal was really nice. I would like the opal. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think if this book existed without an accompanying film, I would probably still love parts of it. 
Like, I would probably still love the doesn't make me cry line, and I would probably still love, like, Danny and Rusty. Like, there are parts that still appeal to me. Um, but, like, just watch the movie. <laughs> you can just do that. <laughs> and you should. This is truly a... Uh, a just watch the movie situation. I mean, yes. I think we're all in agreement on that one. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Andrew Overbeam. Hi. You used to be married to the novelization of Ocean's Eleven. Oh. Okay. And then because of crimes it committed that you won't share, and that's your right, you split up. It's been three or four years. Suddenly, the novelization of Ocean's Eleven comes back up to you and is like, babe, I miss you. I'm sorry. I love you. Are you going to take it back? Does it make you laugh? Does it make you cry? Uh, I would make it clear to the novelization of Ocean's Eleven that I'm here to mess around a little bit if they want, but I'm not <laughs> interested in having emotions get involved again. Fuckable, not dateable. Got this it. is a fuckable, not dateable novelization. Uh, we dig for this stuff, right? We, we're a novelizations podcast. We expose ourselves to this all the time. So there are things to be found in here, and this the digging was not totally fruitless, but if I was anything but who I am, a novelization addict, I would probably be let down by this thing, which had its spoils few and far between so would never recommend this to somebody would never recommend the only situation i'd ever recommend this to somebody is if they were like i'm so into oceans 11 2001 i've consumed every bit of content i can find i'm sick about it i can't i can't get another drip what they stopped making these because bernie mac passed away he was important but there's 10 other guys where's 14 my actual thought um <laughs> should keep going there's 10 other guys uh yeah, I, 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 don't like, uh, I don't like the book so much, and I, I honestly think that the only reason I came into this discussion with a little bit of a positive feeling about it was because I already liked Graham. So, mm. Roxana Haddadi, thank you so much for coming on hey, and thank talking you this guys. Movie with us. Yes, this was fun. Roxana, for our listeners, what is it that you do, where do you do it, and why? Oh, wow. And why? Uh, okay. I am a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. I also write about film and pop culture. You can find me at vulture.com. And why do I do it? Um, hmm. I think because <laughs> movies and TV help me understand who my father was when I was a child and that grew into me feeling like I better understood people by the art they create and consume and that's why I do that is this the, the first time anyone's actually <laughs> answered the question is this the first time maybe but it's the best one no, it's the best one that was amazing thank you guys yeah uh, Roxana, I, uh, something I'll say just about your writing is that your ability to week after week write things about justified city primeval that weren't just this is not going so hot for me the viewer was <laughs> unbelievable. Thank I was you. reading your reviews going I might be watching a great 
piece of American television. <laughs> and then I would put on episode five or whatever, and it'd be Boyd Holbrook going like, I'm still a little dangerous. <laughs> it just wasn't justified. It. it wasn't justified. And like, there are so many prequels and spinoffs you get that are not the thing. And it's like, why are we doing mm-hmm. this thing that's not the thing? Um, and justified is probably like, the worst example of that. You know what? That's actually really fascinating because you probably know this from my recaps, but City Primeval is not a Rayland story. And no, I it think isn't. it, it isn't. completely, like when you read Elmer Leonard's book and you watch Justified, it's so clear that these two things are not going to marry together. And the show insisting that Raylan being a fish out of water is not good enough to actually make the show work. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. But thank you. And There's how it, other it, Raylan Givens books they could have done. Yes, but they basically sort of did them all already, like in Justified, right? So they didn't do the one I read where he goes to Italy. Then they didn't. Hannah, what's that? <laughs> I don't think I've read that one. Um. Oh, geez, I don't remember what it's called at the moment. Uh, it's about it's like a guy who's like a criminal that Raylan is like wrapped up in. I'm now gonna go to my Goodreads and see if Please. I can find it. Um, Do you know how the much thing about I would have watched him being that? <laughs> and and uh, it's let's see which one it's either I think it's riding the rap I think is the one but I think and you know what's weird about that is that I could have sworn that at some point they adapt some part of that book during the main justified Perhaps they did so maybe they mm, picked mm-hmm. pieces apart but Andrew what were you gonna say. Oh, I was just going to say that the fish out of water element of City Primeval doesn't work because part of the premise of Justified was that this guy went and kind of became a city folk. Yes. And then he comes back to his home and he's already city city guy back in Kentucky. The, the City Primeval was like, what if a fish was in water? Mm-hmm. And it didn't help that the <laughs> really, city guy in city. It's not, it didn't help that they didn't shoot in Detroit. Like they shot in Chicago. And it never like felt like Detroit either, right? So there's like mm-hmm. no real sense of place. Um, mm. Yeah, disappointing. Very disappointing. To our listeners, <laughs> please remember to rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash authorized pod. And if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple in which... You write a paragraph novelizing a scene from your favorite film. We'll read it on air and try to guess what it is. So don't be too dang obvious about it. And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you think that you recognize what this is from. Hey, Rusty, you don't really have such a big role in this heist we're about to do. What are you going to do all night? Oh, it's 2001. I think I'll read Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections. Good night.
This is another novelization of an Ocean's Eleven film, and thus, it's time for another round of... How Many? <laughs> now, Hannah, you have played the game How Many, while Ethan and Roxana have not. I don't remember so... the game How Many. <laughs> You will remember how to play how many. Okay, great. Uh, Hannah, I have created a sample problem specifically. Uh, oh God, no! Yeah, designed it's coming back to me now. for your tastes. And uh, <laughs> if you would, I'd, I'd like you to play that just to demonstrate to 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 the others how this game I'll works. I'll try. Okay, Hannah. Mm -hmm. Well, what is this times? <laughs> Oh, this. No. Okay, so we're talking oh Ocean's God. Eleven times Saw 3. <laughs> so this is 33? This is, of course, the original Ocean's Eleven times Saw 3, giving us a product <laughs> of 33. Okay. Yes, I now, remember this question. Nobody said math was involved. No one said math was involved. This is false promises <laughs> and a threat. Well, uh, Roxana, you may be uh, heartened to hear that there are four points involved in what Hannah just did. One for identifying the first movie, one for identifying the second, and two for getting the correct mathematical answer. So sure. please do buzz in even if you feel that you don't have the full kit and caboodle. So I'm taking zero points for the sample, right? I think that's fair. That was like made so that you would get yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. And thank you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. Uh, so go ahead and buzz in with your first name if you feel like you have any elements of this. First up, what is this plus this? Oh, my God. Hannah. I know. I mean, I know. Hannah Blackman. Plus. This is, of course, the movie Seven. What was it? 1,000 Years of Longing? Is that what that movie was called? And if Anyone so... Anyone else have a guess on the second film? <laughs> I believe it's 3,000 it? Years of Longing, isn't it? It is, of course, 3,000 okay. Years of Longing, Wait, creating even. a sum there you of... Go. So the math is 3,007. <laughs> this is, of course, the movie 7 plus 3,000 Years of Longing, getting us a sum of 3,007. Okay, great. Oh my God. Okay. All right. Wow. Shout out Up to next. Idris in that <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to this photo of Idris with his pointy little ears. <laughs> mm -hmm. Up next. What is this divided by this? Wow. Woof. Woof. Uh, I, watched, I watched this show and I, I just can't remember. What show are we looking at here, Ethan? I believe we're looking at something from Battlestar Galactica, aren't we? I think so. Mm. Was that a yes mm, or a no? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. It definitely is Trisha you, Helfer how do you, as a certain how do you character. Divide. Oh, okay. So that's what we're dealing with here. Character who's like a number. Okay. Character who's a number, mm -hmm. classically. Okay. Divided by. How would one be divided by. Trinity? Is, is it I'm just very three? confused. Is that is that lady six? Mm. This is of course Cylon number six from Battlestar Galactica divided by Trinity. I didn't mean for the answer to pop up. It's two. Who gets oh, points okay. there? I mean Roxana uh, definitely gets up credit. Point. Roxana definitely gets six Thank and you. Uh, 
it, 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 someone said Trinity for the first time, Ethan. So I think that's a point. But okay, well, uh, okay. I'm just going to give points as I feel right about. I think I Roxana think said Trinity for the first Definitely. time. I think I just held up the number three. I think we can just share credit. I'll take whatever. <laughs> I'm point. calling it two points, Roxana, zero points, the rest of us. Look, I don't okay. know if my mental state That's... is slipping or not, but I'm convinced that this game is brilliant and perhaps marketable. <laughs> Up next, what is the greatest common factor of what? this oh. and this? So is 12 Angry well, Men and 12 and... Angry Men. So 12? <clears throat> This is, of course, 12 Angry Men and the remake of 12 Angry Men, <laughs> giving us a greatest common factor of 12. Is this what the SAT math section is like now? Because, like, this is really too much. Yeah. Here's the question that I have is I just did three hours of tutoring, but did I stop? Hmm. I mean, I always forget that you're a tutor until we're doing this. I haven't been asked about a greatest <laughs> common factor in 20 years. I have no memory of that even as a term. Like, I don't even remember that as a concept. My God. Okay. Let's pray that it doesn't get more complicated. Up next. Let's. Oh, God. Who's in what control of that? This to the negative <laughs> this. Okay, so 11, 11 to the negative. Negative two? This is, of course. 11 from Stranger Things, raised to the negative Riker from the next generation, who was, as Hannah has pointed out, constantly referred to as number one. Giving us an answer of... I don't know how to do this. No. 11 to the <laughs> negative power of one. Isn't it negative 11? No, I don't know. I, have no, I just, I don't know a clue. I don't think it's possible to take a positive number and, and use an exponent to make it negative. But I, I understand okay. the impulse. Thank you, Andrew. I was unaware. <laughs> I don't know how you take something to the negative power. I don't. I don't know what that means. Well, is I don't know how to take anything to any powers. Yeah. Is it one? Is it zero? Is it math? Taking something to the negative power is, of course, doing one over that thing to the positive power. So this is uh, one over eleven. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. Hey, some indeed. points. S some points were gotten here. Yeah. Like, it's all good. Mm -mm. Up next. Mm -mm. <laughs> it's not all good. I'm with Roxanne. <laughs> At least the game, is, you can understand the rules. Sometimes that's not a given. <laughs> that's true. Up next. What is this divided okay. by this? Okay. 310 divided I'm, I'm, by pi. Can I use my calculator uh, for this? <laughs> Roxana, you seem to be onto something pi. here. What are, you, what, what are we looking at? Well, we're looking at 310 to Yuna, Yuma, starring Christian Bale, the remake, divided by a still from Darren Aronofsky's, Darren Aronofsky's pi. So <sighs> 310 divided by 3.14. So what, like nearly 100? 90-something, maybe? This is, of course, 310 to Yuma divided by Darren Aronofsky's pi, and you get approximately 100. Amazing. Okay, yeah. Four yeah. full points to Roxana. 
an absolute coup for our guest. Thank you. The only Darren Aronofsky movie I like. So there you go. Hmm. 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 Noah coming Aronofsky. to authorize yeah. coming to authorized sometime in the past before this episode came out. Oh my god! Not How yet do you recorded. schedule this show. Well, Ethan, we're of course doing the 1960s season, and then this is a bonus episode because we did the original Ocean's Eleven, and so that we have to wait until we get all the 60s stuff in the can. So these wait, but then you know, yeah, obviously, it's obviously. it's math. It's somehow also math. <laughs> it's somehow also math. Up next, what is this? Let's just, we all know it before I ask the actual question. What is this? Blade Runner 2049. Fantastic. This is, of course, Ryan Gosling and Blade Runner 2049. Which of these is a factor of Blade Runner 2049? (gasps) This, this, and or this. Okay, so three days of the condor. That's no six cents. Okay. And then Lion King. One and a half? <laughs> Could be two. Great point. What is the hair? It's, it's got to be one and a half because two's got a whole different lion in it. <laughs> okay. That's true. The boy <laughs> lion in two is, uh, looks spooky evil. That's part of his, <laughs> his trauma. That's his whole bag. Okay. Okay. So. The question is what? Which one of Which these, of these is a to... factor of Blade Runner 2049? So I don't remember what factor means. Yeah, I don't know how to yeah. do this one is mathematically. It, is it three? I'm just going to guess three. That's just my guess. I'll know. guess one and a half. Although all of these seem like three, six, and one and a half are like factors of each other to me. <laughs> they go into okay, each so other. All- all this answers are locked, math. right? All <laughs> answers are locked. So now I'm going to do a little explanation on this. Uh, high numbers, when you want to figure out if they're divisible by three, you can, of course, add their digits. So if we add two, four, and nine, we get 15, which is divisible by three. Uh, one and a half goes into three. So that's also divisible. And 2049 isn't even. So six cannot go in. So I'm going to point. So Hannah and I got points. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. It's it's uh, three days of the condor <clears throat> is a factor, as is uh, Rosen Timba and Gildan Pumba are dead. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. All right. Yeah. Everyone's having fun. <laughs> Up next, what is? Well, I, I started no. it wrong. Up next, I present you a right triangle with legs. This and this. What is the hypotenuse of this triangle? Oh my god! Okay. Okay. I see Oceans 12, and I see District 9. The hypotenuse, isn't it? Something times something divided by something. So maybe 12 times 11, which is 120. No. A hundred. Okay. I'm just going to guess. Ten. For no reason whatsoever. Look, you've gotten the two points Mm -hmm. for Ocean's 12 being one leg and District 9 being the other leg. While your answer was not correct, that is still some good points. 
Anyone have an idea as to what the <laughs> hypotenuse here would be? The hypotenuse, of course, opposite the 90 degree angle. So it must be the longest. Oh, that yeah. makes so much sense. Like, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. Is this a squared plus B squared equals C squared? It's a little bit of pie fag. I'm throwing a little pie fag in here. Yeah. Is, is that what this is? I still can't do it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. Nine, 12. So 12 squared is 144. And nine oh, squared gross. is... 81. 81. So 144 plus 81 is <coughs> 225. And the square root of 225 is what, 15? 15? If you have a triangle with legs, District 9 and Oceans 12, the hypotenuse is, of course, 15 and pregnant. Oh, Point for God. all of us for putting up with this. <laughs> I had I did the little Up math next. and like for what? <clears throat> no, that, like, was, that, was, forgotten, that was glorious, Hannah. I've forgotten so much about math. This is like really upsetting. <laughs> I'm learning that about myself as well. <laughs> yeah, I know this about myself, oh my and it's it's coming back to haunt me with my kids. Now I'm gonna have to admit to all of them, like you can live a life without knowing math, unless you're friends 100%. with Andrew Overby. <laughs> Right, then it's a problem. Yeah. And uh, to Ethan and our listeners, I will say I do, of course, uh, tutor ages nine and up in math. So remotely. I so just it. let me know. All right. Up next. We all have an idea what this is. Maybe. Okay. This is eight mile. What is, what is the prime factorization of eight mile? Before These you are answer. only getting harder. It's not nice. <laughs> Before you answer, you can get an extra point if you can express the prime factorization in films. Again, I don't really know how to do prime factorization or what that exactly means. So that makes it hard to do it in films. Uh, is it could it be could it be four and then like a movie would be four brothers? I don't know if I like be that four idea. Or it would be eight. But four, not prime. Oh, okay. I get it. Okay. Two. Do I get it? Two weeks notice. Two weeks notice. What would the other prime factors be? Hannah? Oh, fuck. I don't know how this works. <laughs> There's other one. One. Well, just imagine that you've taken the prime factor out and you continue to prime factor. <laughs> All right. Some people get points. Probably Hannah. The prime factorization of eight mile is, of course, two, two and two. Of oh, course. because it's got it. Okay. I don't got wow. it. Yikes. All right. This is fun, and I hate to change it up on you guys, but for the last two slides, we are no longer going off of titles, character names, things like that, but instead, the number film that this is in a series. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, just to clarify, if I were to put something like The Empire Strikes Back, that would be two, not five, as I'm going in chronological order of reality. Okay. Okay. Okay, great. Up next, what is You wouldn't have this? to say that if it wasn't going to be complicated. Yeah. What is negative this to the power of this? Okay, so this is Nightmare on Elm Street. No, 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 never. no, it's Halloween three oh, season of the witch. Yes. So three and that's one. 
So but it's the four power of because of the way Andrew told us to do this. Oh right, okay. yep. So just four. Yeah. Here's a here's a hint on the first picture that no one needed, but I included. Oh wait, I don't think I included sound in the share, but I'm playing the Silver Shamrock song. Well, Ethan got days it. Days to Halloween, it. Halloween, Halloween. Eight more days to so Halloween. So I know that when you put a negative in the parentheses, it negates the negative. Right? Does it? Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you even mean by that. <laughs> I don't think you could ever include a negative, a negative that just doesn't matter. I thought it did if it was inside parentheses like this. Oh, it... Oh, if there's another one outside, maybe. Ugh. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I don't know. All right, so, so we what, figured so it's out. It's negative three mm -hmm. to the power of... Four. Four? Great. Which would be... The exponent is, of course, the number of negative threes we're playing with. We're right. multiplying together. Is it 81? It is, of course, positive 81, because okay. the four <laughs> negatives all cancel out. Counter out. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Great. Wow. All right. Our final slide. I know that's hard for you guys to hear. How are we doing on score, Hannah? Uh, Ethan has five points. Roxana has 13. And I have 11. That can't be right. Well, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the scorekeeper, and that's what I say. An yeah, unwinnable lead by our guest. <laughs> our final slide. What is... No, it's not what is. Let me say it again. Our final slide. This over negative X <sighs> equals this over this. Okay, so we got four over... What's that we're looking at, Hannah? What? Oh, sorry, we're looking What's at... What's the four? Mad Max Fury Road. Over negative x equals Top Gun two divided by uh, I have no idea Wall what Street movie Money Talk, which oh, is right. number two. Also two. Okay, okay, so two over two would be one. So it's so you need four over two negative, negative x. So negative two x equals eight. Uh, right, three. I think negative x is three, so x is negative three. No. no. Uh, well, well, here's the thing: you got a two over two on the right. Yeah, right? so that's a one. So, so it's one. Right, but but just think about the fact that they're the same number: two over two. You've got a four over a negative x on the left, and they equal each other. Four. So the negative x has to be what? Negative four. Yeah, negative four. Sense. X, of course, equals negative four. When you do, <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road over negative X equals Top Gun Maverick over Wall Street Money Never Sleeps. I hate how much like written math helpful. I did for this. Look at all that. I hate I you. Like, I think, can I say, I almost feel like this is like purposefully tricky because if you had a parentheses around the X, then it would have been more clear than what's that the X itself could also be negative. But like having the oh. negative, right? I am I am something of a of a trickster god of this podcast. But I I have to say that was not an intentional 
trick. That's just how I think of math. I hate you. That seemed never fine play to this me. game again. If you bring this game <laughs> again, I will not play it. Unfortunately, how many is uh, a, a standby of the podcast now? It's just the possibilities are endless.